0: Steve Fuller is a professor of sociology at the University of Warwick and the author of Humanity 2.0 and Post-Truth, Knowledge as a Power Game. This is Steve Fuller. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to *Dunk Tank. All right. uh, I'm here with Steve Fuller. Uh, Thank you, Steve, for joining me. No problem. You know, with the rise of all these... Uh, AI generated uh, this AI generated content and these deep fakes and chat GPT you are one of the first people that I thought of because this is this feels like the dawn of of something that uh, is very central to the themes in your work which is uh, this distortion of reality but a, a a new way of distorting reality where on a certain level, it almost feels like, you know, I don't know if you watch the show Catfish, um, but the no, premise of yeah. it, you, you, you don't watch it. OK, The the premise of it is just people talking to someone online and basically they're catfished. They they think they're talking to, you know, Debbie in Oklahoma and it's Samuel in Arkansas, whatever. And when these people meet up in real life, the person doing the catfishing, what they almost always say is, you know, like, I know I'm not real, but what we had was real. And it feels like there's something like that going on with this AI generated content where people see works of art that aren't real, but they they, they don't know well, they're not quote unquote real, but they don't know that they're not human created and they feel that it's so soulful and all these things. At, at what point if this AI generated content gets really good, do you think it's fair to say that people are no longer being like quote unquote catfish, but that we've almost just like created a new plane of reality in, in the digital world?
1: Well, yes. Uh, I think the, the short answer to your question is yes. And I think uh, what all of this stuff does is to, in a way, uh, uh, cause us to check ourselves with regard to what we have been taking as reality up to now. Um, because uh, if if you think about it, um, you know, in fact, when uh, let's say somebody somebody submits a, a scientific journal article. Um, the scientific journal article is typically very much uh, formatted according to a certain way, it has a certain kind of language. Uh, m- most of the sc- stuff that is discussed in the scientific journal article has been discussed in other journal articles before. And usually what's just changed is like some of the data has changed and maybe, you know, some of the words to introduce some new concepts have changed but a good 85, 90% of the article is actually something that could be AI generated. And very often the standard by which such things are judged in the peer review process is whether it, in a sense it matches the template, mm. right? Um, and this is one of the reasons why, by the way, um, there has, you know, it's, re- it's relatively easy actually to uh, create uh, fraudulent scientific papers and when we're talking about you know areas like biomedical research where where the uh, results as it were do matter because they're going to get uh, applied to people's health, uh, it becomes very serious. Um, but the point is, one reason why that's possible is because so much of the uh, content that we generate, including the kind of high-end knowledge content, right, is in fact uh, effectively mechanically reproducible, right? Uh, and and so this is. Um, this is something that in a sense we already live with yeah. and and i think in a way we get a little bit too hung up uh by you know wondering whether it's a computer doing it or a human being doing it uh because in fact what's being what's being done uh is in fact something that a computer could do right so computers could conduct research There have even been philosophical arguments saying that in certain forms of research right, where one needs to get very exact measurements and one wants to avoid things like a, a sort of a personal error, you know, personal observation error and things of that kind, that a machine could in fact do it better, right? Uh, and, and so uh, I do think already we have lived in a kind of blurred state, uh, partly due to the standardization of our knowledge practices generally. It's just now we're sort of, as it we're becoming aware of this, Because we're getting to a level where artificial intelligence can, you know, really closely approximate what we've been presuming humans to be doing all along.
0: You you know, it's interesting when you're talking about the ability of computers to do research and computers to sort of replace humans in these regards. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, there seems to be a kind of despair in some quarters of the right about the rise of ai in terms of replacing humans particularly uh with artists where it feels like oh this is something that is you know so soulful for human beings and here's just a, a probability algorithm that generates content that's maybe better than you know 90% of humans could do on their own or more um why well, do you- yeah go ahead
1: yeah yeah i i mean i'm As it turns out, I have a PhD student who uh, works for UNESCO, and at the moment, UNESCO is the UN agency that's uh, involved in uh, preserving world cultural heritage, among other things. And so, the question of artificially intelligent, you know, artificial intelligently generated art, um, is one of the issues on the table about whether that should be uh, counted as world cultural heritage, um, given that, of course, UNESCO has typically. had the assumption that whatever this heritage is, it's something created by humans. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and so this is kind of a, an interesting question. And, and so there are several dimensions of it that maybe get at the sort of issues you're trying to raise. One is, um, first of all, uh, the, um, the nature of, of, of a work of art and what makes a, a work of art, um, you know, aesthetically significant so that it could actually count as a world cultural heritage. Um it, 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 it involves lots of different things, but it's by no means obvious that it could not be put into a kind of algorithm that also had a kind of deep learning aspect to it, right? Um, because so often the kinds of things that we point to as being as, of aesthetic significance are styles. And styles are basically a, a certain character in which something can be done over and over again, but in the style. So in the style of Rembrandt, in the style of Picasso. Right, and in fact, there are machines that are able to generate this. So, as it were, you know, Rembrandt and Picasso uh, generated, you know, a finite number of works. Um, But, but of course, uh, we could have an algorithm that could generate all the other works they could have generated but didn't. Yeah. Okay. Because they're in the same style, as it were. And even talking about Picasso, who's someone who went through many styles, um, you could do that too, right? Um, And um, and so and, and if the experts. Uh, cannot tell the difference, yeah. right? Or at least think of the think of the uh, the human created art and the uh, artificially intelligent created art as being of equal value, right? Um, uh, th- then it seems to me, uh, you know, we're we're in a very interesting position with regard to this. Um, and again, I, I do think part of what we need to do when we evaluate this situation is to somewhat demystify our conceptions of art in the human realm, yeah. uh, because in fact Rembrandt had a school. Right. So in other words, and this is this is not unusual for artists. Right. That artists, uh, of course, a lot of them do paint alone. But, you know, there are many cases where artists had, uh, you know, apprentices, understudies and so forth, who often completed the paintings. Right. And there was a sense in which, you know, one one needs to kind of take all that in the round uh, when one is evaluating exactly, uh, you know, where the value of the art comes from. Because it, it, it I, I think uh, too often what we do is we kind of fixate on the individual genius with a kind of idiosyncratic mind, right, that's responsible for the thing. But at the end of the day, um, the, the aesthetic value uh, resides in characteristics of the artwork that, in principle, artificial intelligence could do.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point, particularly with Rembrandt, where even today there are paintings where experts can't tell whether it was done by him or one of his students
1: that's right and so and, and the and the question is what what hangs on this right this yeah. is the interesting thing what wh- why are we worried about this issue why are we worried about whether it was Rembrandt or one of his students is somehow is somehow the painting um is of less aesthetic value uh if the student did it I mean if you, especially if you can't tell the difference otherwise I mean this is where it gets kind of weird um now I understand from the standpoint you know that that when we talk about the art market, right? And we're talking about putting a price on these paintings, yeah. Um, you know, I can in, in a way I can see why the Rembrandt painting would be worth more than the student painting, perhaps. But that kind of way of evaluating things is not exactly the same as evaluating things in terms of their aesthetic significance.
0: Yeah. And the way that the art market evaluates art, like if, if Rembrandt scribbled on a napkin, you know, a doodle that a child could do, it's all, already gonna be worth way more than you know if it was done by someone anonymous doesn't matter well, that's
1: how Picasso made money a lot of the time toward the in the later part of his career he used to do yeah. stuff like that
0: totally right and and then it's like okay well it seems like part of the problem is that the way that the art market evaluates um uh, sort of assigns like a numerical value to aesthetic um you know quality that's sort of taken over our minds where it's like, oh, this painting is worth $20 million. Like, it, it must be really important. And like, you know, is it worth $20 million? People, you know, freak out over like a basket or something like that. Um, it w- One of, when, when we talk about this uh, despair though, I think part of it feels interesting with regards to your work because on the other hand, we have these, um, and I'm not sure that these are opposite tendencies, but we have this, uh, these transhumanist tendencies to want to sort of boost our abilities, to boost our brain power, to, uh, you know, give us new tools in our tool belt. Um, But on the other hand, it feels like there's this tendency to um, almost want to do away with what could be called essentially human. Like I, I see a lot of delight within the realm of, Uh, like the AI community, about being able to sort of reduce creativity uh, to an algorithm. And I see a lot of despair among people who are not in that community, who feel like, oh, well, now I've been made redundant. And it seems like this is just going to sweep across a number of industries, not just art, but accounting, etc., where people are going to be made to feel as though they don't like have any real utility in the world. And and that, I don't think that that's going to be good for society. Do you? Well, uh, I think,
1: you know, you might say there's the uh, short term and long term view of this. Uh, certainly not in the short term, it's going to be good. Um, I mean, and in fact, we're talking about quite a mass phenomenon because um, um, this must have been like, oh, five, six years ago now. Um there was a, a debate um, at the Science Museum in London, uh, where lawyers were debating about whether uh, the, the extent to which uh, their jobs would be replaced by artificial intelligence in let's say 25 years, I believe was the mm. the time frame that was given um, because uh, somebody had written a book uh, which basically was predicting that all of the kind of routine uh, legal services, and, and, you know, most of what goes on in the law, and actually this is probably true of medicine as well, um, is pretty routine stuff, right? It isn't very sophisticated or complicated. I mean, admittedly, you have to go to school for all these years. But the point is, what you're actually doing is is kind of a, a fairly mechanical routine thing with very predictable outcomes. Um, and, um, and so the figure that was given was uh, something like uh, as much as 60% of lawyers uh, could be replaced by artificial intelligence programs uh, within twenty five years. Uh, and the lawyer, and so this uh, was a room primarily full of lawyers uh, arguing this. And uh, the majority uh, of the people in the room actually believed that this was true, right? In other words, they do believe that, in fact, there is going to sh- cause massive job shortages in the law. Um, and 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 there's been similar things said about medicine as well. Now, um so there is likely to be, a kind of in, um, labor market crisis you might say uh, that is related uh, to uh, the introduction the greater introduction of artificial intelligence work uh, it might actually affect the education sector as well right I mean the chat GPT thing is uh, in a way kind of in that ma- in that mold um, but again you see what, what's the lesson here um, the lesson is that in fact um, you know we have un- we have kind of overestimated, and as a result, under-theorized, you might say, what exactly is distinctive about being human? I mean, I was mentioning a few minutes ago about how, you know, most scientific work is fairly mechanical, right? And can be done by a machine. Uh, and science is supposed to be the pinnacle of our, you know, intellectual achievements. And so in this regard, I think one of the things that artificial intelligence is holding up a mirror to the human condition and and basically saying, look, guy, you know, you, you know you've been... You, you know you've been saying you know humans can do all these marvelous things and so forth but most of the stuff that is done by human beings right is machine replaceable mm. uh and and that includes the top end stuff not just the manual labor but it includes the intellectual work where people go to school for how many years right three four five six years right to get appropriate kind of training where you could just program a machine to do it um and so i think this is going to cause a serious kind of reassessment of where The distinctiveness of the human lies and it'll be very profound i think um and and people will take all kinds of sides on this so for example um there are people within the computer science community i mean in in other words among the people who actually are involved in designing these artificial intelligence systems there is a movement afoot to actually limit the extent of their development in other words to prohibit them uh, to be radically self-programming, you know, in a sense that they could become fully autonomous and so forth, right? That they should always be operating at kind of a level below what the human uh, currently operates. In other, and, and the way this is sometimes described by one of the computer scientists is that robots should always remain slaves, okay? Uh, and And that is coming from the, you know, from the AI community itself, right? There's a whole branch of 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 people kind of moving in that direction. Of course, most of them aren't, right? Most of them are kind of like the people you were talking about earlier, right? Who in in, in a sense are very excited by the idea, right? That we might have these super intelligences that transcend uh, what humans are capable of doing. And and I think those guys in a sense are kind of winning the game at the moment. But then what is the, you know, where does this leave the human? Uh, And uh, of course, you know, one, one way to go on this, and, and I'm kind of inclined to go this way, is to say that humans got to smarten up their act, right? I mean, there, you know, I mean, there's a sense in which this is the, the, the gauntlet is being thrown down to humanity to prove itself. Uh, and, and I think we're up to it. But, you know, you know, but the point is, you know, just like every kind of new, you know, infrastructure innovation that's taken place in the history of humanity, that's caused an enormous amount of dislocation of people right? This is another one, right? And then we just kind of regroup, reorganize, and redefine the kind of being that we are. I I think that's basically where it's going to go. But it's going to be, you know, it's going to have radical consequences in the short term, I think. I think it's going to do a real number on higher education, right? Because universities are the places that train all these mechanical humans who end up becoming doctors and lawyers and scientists and things like this. And I think it could do a real number on, on higher education, uh, and I don't think higher education is very well prepared to to cope with that. But but uh, I think once we get through that, you know, so let's say we say, you know, 50 years from now, um, I think things will settle down and, and there will be a kind of new understanding of the human that where we do retain our autonomy vis-a-vis these machines.
0: Yeah, that's as you were saying that it just made me think of I, I was on a university campus recently. And I just had this thought where I saw these professors walking past and comparing it to the image of like our sort of uh, ape ancestors, we humans <laughs> walking upright with their shoulders back. <laughs> and there's something dignified about that, but there's also something uh, terribly proud about it as well. And may, maybe we need to be humbled on a certain level. Do you feel that well, way? Well,
1: yeah. It's kind of like a wake up call, you know, I mean, it's kind of like a wake up call about what, you know, what are we, if we're, if we want to assert our humanity, what exactly are we asserting here?
0: Yeah, right. Because, I mean, it's also ironic that this is, as you said, throwing down the gauntlet to humanity, when of course, humanity is the ones creating these tools, you know. That's right. That's um, right. Go uh, Go ahead.
1: No, I, I mean, see, this is the thing about technology, especially the, these kinds of what you might call it, what I would regard as kind of infrastructural technologies, technologies that in a sense reshape the, the, the uh, life space in which we live. Um, it, it seems to me it, this has always happened and, 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 and humanity has typically been blindsided by it, right? And then we have to kind of regroup and, 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 and this, this leads typically to new power relations, Right, a lot of the old elites disappear, we get new elites, I mean, all of that kind of stuff happens, right, um, and, and I think we're already beginning to see this a little bit, especially in so far as uh, the higher education is being um, decentered, right, as being the ultimate source of uh, all knowledge and authority, and part of it is coming from the uh, ease with which artificially intelligent beings are there to provide the knowledge for us.
0: Well, yeah. And one of the things when you said that the higher education world is not prepared for this, it feels like the people who you mentioned, the doctors, lawyers, etc. Those are people who I, I think take a great deal of pride in the status that their position affords them. And when that's undercut by a machine replacing them, I, I think they're going to be quite lost. And Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm curious like what do you think is gonna happen to those people and who are these new elites that are gonna arise? Is it just gonna be computer programmers?
1: It's gonna be interesting. I I um uh, I don't know exactly. I mean, I think the old elites will kind of I mean, look, what there will always be a market for will be the very top end stuff. Um, uh, so when I think about the law, because I, I I do teach law students, um, you know, there's certain branches of the law which are, in a sense, um, very, you might say, very boutique. And they're not the kinds of things that are very mechanically reproducible. And, and a good example of that is human rights law, okay? Uh, human rights law tends to cover very particular kinds of cases, like crimes against humanity and things of that kind. Uh, you know, they're not covering divorces, <laughs> right, and yeah. parking tickets and stuff like that. Um, and, and so it seems to me, you know, and, and, and the same thing with medicine, right? I mean, uh, if we're talking about exotic diseases and stuff like this, uh, you will, will, will still need the human doctors and the human lawyers, right, for that high-end stuff. Okay. Um, I think it's going to be the mediocre people who are really, um, you know, and most of them are mediocre, um, you know, uh, are, are going to be the ones under threat. I mean, especially given that, uh, you know, these professionals actually charge quite a lot of money for their services when it gets right down to it. Um, and, uh, and, and there, I think, We might get an interesting kind of labor, uh, you know, kind of labor market battle because uh, as the price of these artificial intelligence things drop, right, and uh, and they are indistinguishable in the services that they provide from the human beings, uh, then why go to a human being? Right. So through market pressure, these people might be put out of business.
0: Yeah, that's that's funny when you mentioned divorce court. I, I just can't imagine a, a, a guy walking away from divorce court feeling ruined. I'm just like ah, oh, that son of a bitch, GPT. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, but you know, I mean, I mean, I, I think it's worth saying that um, in uh, there is a branch of of uh, the law uh, of legal research, I should say, uh, called jury metrics. Right. And, and what that does is it tries to come up with predictive models of how certain kinds of juries or certain kinds of judges, given their, their backgrounds, will judge certain kinds of cases. And, and for, you know, a pretty good range of cases, these models are pretty predictively accurate. OK, now, what does that tell you? Well, it does tell you that there's a sense in which there is something quite programmatic about the way in which cases are being processed yeah. right by human beings.
0: Right. And that sort of gets back to your point about this holding up a mirror to humanity and saying that this is actually like we, we, we think um, w- one thing that some people have said is that we're sort of we're much more like robots than we would like to imagine. I mean, did you feel that way on any level? Like, you know, we well, are look, uh, <laughs> those things,
1: you know, um, one, okay, so, you, you know, I'm a, a professor of sociology, and one of the things that, that sociologists always kind of bring to the table at a moment like this is the idea that um, most, if not all, of social life is highly scripted, right? In other words, there are kind of patterned expectations that people have of each other that actually enable social life to occur, right? People do not respond to each other randomly. Right. Yeah. That there there are and, and, and people, you know, immediately fall into the scripts. They kind of know when the scripts are appropriate and 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 they they enact them. And of course, there are variations within those scripts about, you know, you so it's not like that. It's not so mechanical. It's more like a decision tree. Right. Uh, yeah. Where there are lots of different options, but they're but they're finite options and they're within a certain kind of range. Um, now, obviously, this is the kind of thing that a, uh, a computer program is, 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 is made for, is to, is to kind of map stuff like that out, right? Um, and so, for example, um, you know, if you think about the, uh, the, the, the growth areas uh, for commercial uh, AI, um, one, of course, is the military drone stuff. But if you put that to one side, the, the second one is the Android companions, especially the ones that are used. Uh, in social care, right, for old people, right? So we've got this situation, as everyone knows, uh, increasingly aging population. Japan is in a way ahead of the curve, and they're the ones who actually introduced this kind of idea, oh, maybe 30 years ago now. Uh, and, uh, And so instead of having people hanging out in nursing homes and filling up hospital beds, what you do is you allow them to stay in their homes, right? But they have this android companion who is a, you know, robot nurse or whatever you want to call it, Right? Um, who is who is uh, programmed actually to uh, recognize the voice pattern of the old person and to listen very carefully. And it has already a kind of bunch of repertoires uh, that are built into it, but it can also learn new repertoires as it observes the old person and the way they move and the kinds of things they request and so forth. And, you know, what, what the evidence shows uh, is that the old people actually like these beings, okay? Uh, and in fact, um, there have been cases where some of these old people would want to, you know, like, uh, leave these robots, uh, something in their will and stuff like that, right? <laughs> like they, they consider them loved ones or something. Yeah. Um, and now the people who tend to be distressed at this first of all, are the, loved, or the human loved ones. They tend, yeah. I mean, this is a very interesting fact about this, right? Is that, is that the humans who know the old person tend to get very distressed by this phenomenon and somehow think that the old person's being fooled, okay? Right, right? And, 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 then, and then of course, on top of that, you've got all the philosophers and, and some of the lawyers as well um, who also think the old person's being fooled, right? Uh, that's because they believe there is some kind of intrinsic difference, right, between the way in which a human being uh, deals with a human being and how a robot deals with a human being. And even if they are, you know, mouthing the same words and they're doing it in the right order, and and, is, and in a certain sense, the human is kind of feeling the way, it, you know, he or she would feel if a human was speaking to them, none of that counts, right? It's the fact that this thing's a piece of machinery, we're going to hold it against it.
0: Yeah, that, that- the 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 sort of analogy that I've thought of in this, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, is with beavers, apparently beavers, they start building a dam uh, due to the sound of running water. And so if you play like a tape recorder of just the sound of running water, that they, they will start dragging pieces of wood over. And maybe, as you said about these um these social scripts, maybe if there's just some entity, robot or or human, that can reasonably follow these decision trees and give like reasonable responses that are believable, uh, then maybe we're just like beavers in that sense. And we're like, oh, well, well they're playing the tape.
1: <laughs> well, you know, uh, this this is, yes, uh, it, it, way back in the 1960s in the late 1960s, um, one of the, uh, so you have to imagine what computers were like back in the 1960s, especially in terms of interfaces and stuff, right? Uh, you know they they, they they were you know they were just kind of succession of of lines it was a very linear kind of thing right screens were flickering and all that stuff uh it was pretty much that all that way until the late 1980s uh and well in the 1960s there was a um, there was a, a a computer program was designed again we're think 1960s we're talking relatively primitive computer program called eliza and the, and eliza was a um, a computer program that was designed to deal with uh, psychiatric issues, um, and the way this was and and uh, and the way it was set up, though, was set up as an experiment. So, person who needs some kind of uh, you know some kind of uh, you know men, person's mentally distressed, right? Um, what they thought they were doing when they were sitting in front of the computer screen was actually communicating with another human being. So, in other words, they thought the computer screen was something like uh, just an interface. To another human being you know a bit like a, a kind of televisual telephone or something um but in fact what they were communicating with was this algorithm right that is programmed to say certain things in response when the you know when the when the human enters something right um and uh, and remember this is the 60s so everything's being typed out it's not talking or anything like that um and the thing that was amazing and this is the thing that really blew the minds of the the computer programmers, was that the people um, thought it was brilliant, right? And, and they were convinced it was a human being doing it, mm. even after they were told, this is just a program, Jack, you know? I mean, um, you know, uh, and, and it was, uh, because what, what, and if you look at what this program was doing, right, um, in a way, it was very much like uh, the way psychoanalysts, uh, at least uh, classically are, where they don't actually say a lot, right? But what they do is they say encouraging things, right? They, you know, that enable then the person to continue to communicate and to kind of express stuff. And then they're, ba- you know, basically being given, uh, you know, relatively positive feedback, but but not terribly extensive or complicated. Uh, and they feel much better after they've gone through this experience. And it was with a relatively simple algorithm.
0: And I think if this is the same... Uh project that i'm, I'm thinking of I, I think a lot of the participants at one point turned to the researcher and said like hey could, do you mind if i just like can you leave the room please while i talk to this thing like
1: yeah 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 exactly you know. exactly and, and the, the guy who, uh, who 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 designed this thing uh, joseph Weizenbaum, um he his he he actually this is the thing that gets very interesting his conclusion was that artificial intelligence is dangerous because hmm. it's it's fooling people, right? This is his right, and he said we have to put a limit on this because people are too easily fooled. That was his conclusion.
0: Wow, yeah. Have you heard of this uh, this app called Replica? Um, no, it's it's like an AI companion, but it's specifically like a romantic companion, and. <laughs> There are a lot of people, of course, out there who don't have any like romantic, uh, you know, relationships in their real life. And so they were turning to this, this AI chatbot and and the, the chatbot would also send them like uh, images of themselves, like, you know, sometimes like lewd images. And recently they updated the terms of service on the app so that they're, they're trying to make it more uh, mainstream friendly. So like no more like lewd images uh, no more, you know, really like romantic talk. And there's this entire subreddit uh, devoted to this problem. And there are like literally hundreds of people who are just like bemoaning the fact, like they they feel like a huge personal loss that their their companion no longer. They're like this this isn't is the same Amy that I knew. And everyone's like, yeah, I know how you feel, and supporting each other and i i wonder if at a certain point we're just going to start recognizing these relationships as being as valid as any human to human relationship and and give you know sort of right you know are, are people people fought for gay marriage are people going to fight for ai marriage at some point um, oh
1: yeah 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 I, I mean i think so and I, and and uh um i I I, I I can't recall it offhand but I think there might actually be a legal precedent for this already um but yes I, I do think so uh, and um, and and this is one of the things that I think actually uh, encourages a lot of AI research into the study of emotions and things like this uh, because you know so so in other words um, you know because historically uh, artificial intelligence research has been focusing primarily on cognitive functions, right? Sort of a, kind of, a, you know, sort of, you know, which ends up giving the, um, the artificial intelligence a certain kind of, you know, the image of it as being kind of Mr. Spock-like, you know, n- neutral kind of thing. Right. Uh, but in fact, uh, because uh, AI researchers have, n- have noted that people form uh, bonds, social bonds, deep social bonds with machines, uh, that uh, it's, it's motivated them to actually study emotion And, and the extent, and, and so, um, and this is also a controversy within the AI community, because again, I was mentioning these people who say that we have to put a lid on AI research. One of the things that they hate is the idea of, of humanizing, let's say the face of AI, right? I mean, because we now have all of these, uh, you know, we have all this latex and super fancy ways of, of actually uh, enabling uh, androids to have very expressive faces. Right. Uh, and and and, you know, and, 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 you know, in very subtle ways, all kinds of emotions could be registered, which the human could register in return. And so these uh, AI guys, um, you know, want to put a lid on that, too, because, again, they think that these robots would be deceiving people. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, so so the argument goes on at that level, too. Um, but I, I do think, again, the, uh, the direction of travel is going to be for more human-looking um, artificial intelligence. Uh, not everything will be like that, but there will certainly be a market for that. Um, you know, and that will encourage uh, more people to form relationships. And I, and I reckon that there will be some legal recognition of this at some point.
0: When you said more human-looking AI, it, it made me think of how these deep fakes uh, are getting really good. And at a certain point they're going to be indistinguishable from uh, real images and there have been all kinds of ways to sort of um, sort of like algorithmically watermark a deep fake so that you can you can verify whether it's real or not um, but there are ways of like muddying that as well it seems like kind of a, a hopeless endeavor to like really be able to distinguish between the real and fake and
1: yeah yeah. yeah. You know, I see. I agree. Uh, and, and, and in a way, I'm a, I'm a bit bemused by the, uh, you know, by the moral panic surrounding deep fakes, because as soon as we, um, I mean, first of all, um, photographs and, 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 and uh, audio, right, have always been edited. Um, right. film, filmmaking is all about editing, basically. Uh, and, uh, and, and of course, uh, once we got into uh, uh, digital versions of all this stuff, uh, and especially when it became easier for, for people to, as it were, take the means of digitization into their own hands, right? People uh, are always uh, digitally, uh, you know, airbrushing and, you know, Photoshopping and all of that stuff. And deep fake, in a way, is kind of just the next level of that. I mean, and, and it's been kind of, I would say, a slippery slope.
0: It, it is the next level, although... One of the things and this relates to your work on the idea of like living in a post-truth society where it feels like it it can give anybody an out where if there's a video of you, you know, ripping lines of cocaine and you're a politician (laughs) comes out, you can say, ah, well, it was deep faked, you know, that wasn't me. Like, and and it, it just sort of puts us in what may be a new position where it gives more people like if you couldn't in the past say that, oh, this was just a photoshopped image, although there mm-hmm. there are other, you know, um, like I heard Teddy Roosevelt one time was tipped off when he was in the New York uh, state legislature that don't go back to your hotel because there are uh, yellow journalists waiting there with like a 14 year old girl. who are going to take a picture uh-huh. as soon as you walk in. And they're going to ruin you. Um, so, like, okay, that's a kind of manipulation that's always been there, I guess. Um, but it, it, isn't this like kind of new? Doesn't this really just like put us in a much more like entrenched post-truth uh, reality?
1: It, it 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 does in the sense that it becomes harder to um, you know how to harder to confirm one way or the other. And I think in a way we need we will end up needing uh, different criteria uh, for evaluating the significance of these things. I mean, I'll give you one example, which I think is very, uh, very, very tricky. And I think though, and, and historians talk about this, um, you know, um, when, uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas in 1963, um, he was about to give a speech, right? Just before he gave the speech, the speech is already, was already written. Uh, he never delivered it, but we have a lot of audio, uh, recording of john kennedy saying all kinds of things right yeah. uh and so what people have done uh is they have uh, put all those bits of uh john kennedy's audio where he's saying various words and making various sounds and so forth and they have um they've stitched it together uh into this speech that he would have given uh had he been alive uh and um and it's it it you know if you if you know you you're, you're you're thinking about 1963 quality audio you know being played today, um, it sounds pre- you know it's pretty remarkable. Um, it sounds pretty remarkable. Uh, and um, now, this is this is I guess technically a deep fake uh, because this event never happened, uh, and uh, yet at the same time, right? Uh, it is composed. All the elements of which it's composed are real uh, and are real of the thing that, uh, the event is supposed to be about. Okay. Um, and so that, you know, if you're a historian, uh, what do you say about that exactly? You see, I mean, it's, it's deep fake, but it's kind of quite sophisticated. And, and it seems to me that we, we might get a lot of that too, actually. Um, especially as part of the idea of historical reconstruction and, and the way I see it is, is a bit like, uh, you know, when you, um, when, you know, archaeologists, um, you know, they go into some, uh, you know, ar- uh, some site, uh, Roman site, ancient Roman site, and they have all these shards of pots and things like this, different things, and then they reconstruct, right? They reconstruct all of the, and, and you know, with dinosaurs, the same thing, right? Reconstruct them, right? They, they have a few bones, a few things, and they put in the rest. Now, is it all this is deep faking? I mean, much much of our knowledge of uh, ancient world uh, is, is based on such deep fakery, mm. um, you know, and sometimes, you know, revi- I mean, especially with dinosaurs, right, there, there's been an enormous amount of revision over the last 200 years about what these creatures really look like, yeah. um, but the point is that the, the modus operandi, uh, of uh, is pretty similar, is pretty similar, um, you know, uh, and, uh, and so, I don't know, again, again, I think it, 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 it's going to be a tough one to call. And I think uh, a lot's going to depend on what's at stake. Um, and um, But but I think the always trying to look for the origin of something it doesn't always end up turning up, turning out to be the most fruitful way of doing things.
0: Well, l- let me ask you this, because that just made me think of what you were saying earlier about humans uh, enacting these social scripts and uh, the fact that, You know AI can do the same thing, and we have real bonds with AI. What about uh, this idea of, let's say it's two humans in a relationship, a romantic relationship, and one of them is deceiving the other and is, is cheating on them behind their back, but they keep up a perfect facade and never let this person know that they're cheating on them, and they do all the correct sort of emotional scripts where they present themselves as a, a loving companion. How is that any different um, than like an AI that on the one hand, it's the same algorithm that presents itself as a loving companion to a certain individual. And then when another individual logs on, um, they they perform the same sort of loving companion, quote unquote, cheating on this person. And they might even say in the chat you know oh i'm only faithful to you um is the human to human cheating uh like is that morally not wrong if you can still maintain the facade is the ai not cheating well
1: okay uh, I... well first of all um as you know, with human beings, this kind of stuff goes on all the time. Right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's not an exotic case at all. Um, and I, and I think you know the the general sociological point about stuff like this, right? Is that you know if you're if, if there are well rehearsed scripts for certain kinds of situations. So like you know there is the script for being the loving partner and the various things you say, like you know it's only you and no one else and all yeah. that jazz. Um, right? Because it, it, it's a repeatable script, right? I mean, yes, you're supposed to be saying it only to one person, but of course you can say it to someone else and the script works there too. And, and so, it, you know, there's a sense in which the moral dimension of this is some kind of a, of a, of a check, you might say, on a script that by definition is infinitely repeatable, <laughs> right? That's one way to look at the morals of the situation that in fact, we have some kind of second order level that restricts right? Or at least it's supposed to restrict if we have the morals, right? The the, the degree to which we can reproduce this script all the time, um, right? It should be just exclusive to one person. Well, you could, you could program a machine to be like that too, right? You could restrict what the, so if the machine actually, you know, so the first person that the machine says, you're the only one for me, it doesn't have to uh, be uh, quite as promiscuous, even though it has the capacity to, to it. it and, and this is where some uh, people who are interested in promoting the idea of machine rights uh, will talk about um, the idea of having to have uh, robot ethics.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and, and it seems, it seems though, that I, I think the average person... Like, if we're going to put AI to human relationships... On par with human to human relationships. Do, I mean, does that mean we're going to have to introduce the same kind of ethical constraints?
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think so. Uh, and and that and that is kind of an interesting programming question from the standpoint of uh, of of how you design the machine. So because in a sense you'll have to design the machine um, so that it is sensitive uh, to where um, humans might be kind. Of in their relationship with the uh, machine. I mean, so, so yeah, you'd have to b- build in some sense uh, of the machine having responsibility for the human. But you see, I think some of that stuff is already being incorporated into these uh, android companions that I mentioned earlier that are in, you know, in the social care business.
0: Yeah. And, and one of the things that that makes me think of, and uh, I'm curious your take on this as a sociologist, is where a lot of, um, there, there are a lot of like AI uh, uh, powered recommendation engines for content. Like on Spotify, you listen to a certain kind of music and then it says, oh, well, you might like this. And some people kind of don't like those those algorithms because it's like, oh, it's just recommending stuff to me that I already like. And I wonder if on a certain level, when we talk about acting out these uh, social scripts where you know, part of what I imagine is, is talked about in sociology about those scripts is, you know, hey, once we surface what these social scripts are, maybe we can change them. Maybe they're more flexible than we thought. Um, but if you're programming this into an AI and it's just sort of like learning what we already are uh, and using what we already uh, how we already speak as its training data. Maybe it's harder to like evolve socially. Um, do you think that's a problem?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, there is a sense, um, uh, and and I think this is one of the early was one of the early concerns about uh, having uh, you know AI all over the place is that it might lead to a more regimented society in some sense, more regimented than than it normally is, uh, because in a sense, what you would have then is an even more self conscious version. Of the kinds of social scripts that we normally, because see the thing about the social scripts that we normally do is that uh, there is there are there are variations on a theme and things can change right and they do change in fact over time uh, through repeated use that isn't so closely monitored right because there's a sense in which we just sort of monitor each other when we're ex- when we're performing these social scripts but there isn't like some top down programmatic programmatic monor- monitoring of it. Right. But with artificial intelligence, in principle, that could happen. Um, at least that was the kind of thing that worried the early artificial intelligence uh, developers. However, if we are talking about machines that have deep learning capabilities, um, and they can modify their scripts, right? So they can modify their scripts uh, over the course of their interactions with humans, then maybe this is less of, of a worry than it seems.
0: I, I suppose so, yeah. I mean, that, that would just be an interesting... I mean, one of the things that's going on right now is like a a Bing chat bot will say something that's horribly offensive and then people go in and got to parrot back. But there are certain things that certain ideas that, uh, you know, in 20, 30 years from now, people may look back at uh, that were commonplace in our sort of like social vocabulary. And people might say in the future, you know, oh, this is horrible in the same way we look back at things said in the 20s and 30s as being terrible. Um, and it, it's like, okay, well, I guess if, you know, will AI drive those changes? Will they still have to come from humans? I mean, can, will we ever get to a point where an AI is correcting our faux pas? That, that seems kind of strange, doesn't it? Well,
1: well, I don't know. I don't think it'll happen quite that way, but I do think one of, the, one of the consequences of people becoming concerned about how these algorithms are programmed is that there is actually a greater sensitivity to uh, all of this, uh, you know, potentially uh, offensive, biased, whatever you want to call it, discourse, right? So, so in a sense, a lot of the stuff um, that is able to kind of fly under the radar a little bit, even though it's offensive... Uh, gets picked up very quickly when it's seen as part of an algorithm that AI is executing. So in that regard, um, AI can provide, again, it can provide a kind of mirror to ourselves, um, you know, uh, and, 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 and they have been checked, right? They have been checked. They have been changed as a result of being, uh, of being noted. Uh, and in fact, one of the, this is one of the, you know, great running kind of criticisms of the way Silicon Valley operates is that it doesn't catch these things in advance. And, and you basically have to wait for the algorithm to play out right, in order to see that there's bias already there.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. On um, I'm, I'm, the question we were talking about earlier about deep fakes, are you surprised that they haven't been as uh, influential in, like, elections yet? I mean, the technology feels like it's there.
1: I know. I It is true. I, ha- I have to admit, you know, given given the whole you know, moral panic that these things are going to be taking over the world and, and determining everything. They, they don't really, no, not yet at least. Uh, and I, I don't, I don't know why that, I don't know why that's the case, uh, to be honest, but, but I do think, look, there is a problem that the whole awareness of deep fake, you know, regardless of whether there's a lot of deep faking going on, um, you know, so think about something like the Ukraine war. Okay. Right. The Ukraine war is being is is being. It seems to be getting video twenty four seven by everyone around the world. Uh, I've never seen such a situation. This is a uh, unprecedented, especially for a, an ongoing wartime situation that just has so much footage uh, coming from all sides, right? Uh, and people. And one one of the consequences of this is that, given that we live in a world that at least we sort of believe is being penetrated by deep fakes, yeah. right? Nobody trusts anything, right? I mean, so we've got all of this information about the Ukraine war and there's still some very, very contentious and basic kinds of, you know, disagreements about what's really happening. Um, you know, and 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 that I think is one consequence actually of the awareness of deep fakes and it goes beyond whether there are, there is actually any deep faking going on. It's that people just stop trusting stuff simply because it has a kind of verisimilitude, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that, that is one of the deep ironies of the information age is that we have more information than we have ever had in human history. And there is at, almost as a consequence, so much more uh, disagreement over what it is that is happening.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and this this is, I mean, this is makes it very hard to get anything like a, a political consensus on something. And that's why, you know, I don't know how to how this how we're going to deal with this in the long term, but a lot of the fundamental assumptions of uh, modern democracy, right, such as the tr- trust, trust and electoral outcomes. Um, you know, that stuff is going out the window, it seems. Um, and and then it becomes very difficult to get even the kind of temporary consensus that you need in a democracy for a working government to be able to do what it does. Um, you know so th- that that i think is 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 troubling and I'm, I'm not sure how we get around that one
0: yeah no that that's going to be a strange one to uh to riddle out um there there's actually if you have 60 seconds after the, after the end of this call sure. i'm working on a, a project that's that's kind of dealing on that um w- one thing that uh is a large topic that uh we're almost at an hour here i don't want to take up too much of your time um that we haven't quite uh, gotten into, but that I wanted to talk to you about is the metaverse. And uh-huh, yeah, may- maybe just as uh, sort of a-, a sample of that, um, one thing that people who have um, sort of promoted the concept of the metaverse, they've talked about it from like a, a privilege perspective of like, if you're someone living in a, a slum in Bangladesh and you can give them a, a cheap $30 headset, That transports them into a realm that is vastly better than whatever they will experience in their day to day life. Then, who are you to say, you know, you privileged Westerner, that they should not have this opportunity? Uh, Do you feel like that's a legitimate, uh, not legitimate argument, um, but like a good faith argument? Um, Is it one that we should take seriously?
1: Well, actually, in a way, we already do. I'm afraid to say, uh, because uh, if you look at something like smartphone penetration in the in in the global South, it's enormous. Even though these people very often don't have, uh, you know, material security, clean water, housing, blah blah blah. Right. I mean, all of that stuff is kind of up up for grabs in those parts of the world. But nevertheless, they've got smartphones and they're communicating all the time. But they're not necessarily alleviating what we would call the basic material needs. Okay. Uh, and that's already happening without the metaverse the metaverse just kind of will amplify this but but this is uh, this is happening i mean um, you know uh, and and I, I could tell you now because um, i uh, you know as you know i wrote this book humanity 2.0 and and so one of the one of the projects that that has been spun off of this book um, uh, is one that involves the vatican okay Because the Vatican is very concerned about the future of humanity Uh, and whether and 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 the way they look at it uh, is that this phenomenon that we're talking about now, where people actually place greater value right on their connectivity, as it were, and their ability to inhabit virtual reality uh, over their material needs. you know, and the, the the and the needs of others as well, the material needs of others as well, right? As they get more and more kind of, uh, you know, isolated in their in their you know in in their in their filter bubbles and all the rest of it, um, that this is in fact jeopardizing humanity, right? So, so in other words, uh, from the church's standpoint, this is uh, an example of how dehumanization is happening in the twenty-first century. It's a different kind of dehumanization uh, than than what we witnessed in the twentieth century. Uh, which, uh, you know, very often had to do with, uh, uh, you know, grinding poverty and, and, uh, and, and sort of uh, inhumane work conditions and, uh, you know, uh, what, uh, persecution from free expression, um, all of that kind of stuff was part of the dehumanization of the 20th century. But in the 21st century, what, what the church is arguing is that there is a kind of uh, fundamental distortion of uh, human values. You know, so if you think of something like uh, you know, Abraham Maslow's um, kind of pyramid of needs by which we become self-actualized, right? it yeah. starts with the material needs having to be satisfied before you move into the higher level needs. right? And, and, and this pyramid has just been blown away by all these developments that we're talking about now. And so the church is really struggling with this because they do see it as very much a form of dehumanization.
0: Wow. Has, has the Pope published an, like, an encyclical on, on the metaverse? Uh, I'm... Well, uh,
1: no, no, he hasn't done it on the metaverse yet, but um, he did w- relatively early in his uh, reign. Um, he, he published this encyclical called La Dato Si, uh, which it was a, a kind of social justice thing uh, where he was making the point that for human beings to have a, a proper sense of justice, we have to recognize that we are connected to each other and we are connected to the earth. And, and, and you know, it, was an int- it was a very interesting statement, you know, coming from the Catholic church because it really stressed the material condition of humanity, okay? Uh, and, and the planetary needs of humanity. And so uh, this, in other words, it was pointing in a different direction from where, you know, all the enthusiasts from, for the metaverse want to take us.
0: That's fascinating um
1: yeah well, and, I, and that's that's going to be a real i'll tell you that's going to be a real major ideological struggle in the future it really is
0: between the people who are more fixated on material reality and those who say let's just jump into the metaverse
1: exactly exactly and, and there'll be interesting bedfellows on either side yeah right because the catholic church is weighing in on the side of the material
0: oh man well at some point i, I hope we can have a more in-depth discussion on that Um for the time being though uh, Steve I always love talking to you um, it's uh, it's always a pleasure and very thought-provoking for people who before we go here but for people who want to uh, get more of your work um, wh- where can they go find you
1: well I mean uh, of course they can uh, they can contact me at sw fuller at Warwick in terms of a lot of these issues that we're talking about here, I have written a couple of books on post-truth, which people can find, uh, you know, looking up Amazon and, and so forth. And I've also written a series of books on humanity 2.0, which is basically struggling with this
0: kind of issue that we've ended the conversation with. Excellent. Uh, Steve, thanks once again, and uh, pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you to Steve Fuller, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tags. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.